Hi, I'm Matt. Um, I'm just going to read the Bible for us before Mike comes up and uh, speaks from it. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and turn in your blue Bibles to page uh, 1882. Uh, And it's James chapter 3 that we're going to read this morning. James has been talking about uh, uh, faith and deeds and uh, how those things should work together. And now he switches to this topic that we've uh, already had introduced, uh, the tongue. Uh, Let me start from chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Good morning. It's good you can be here. Um, my name's Mike Cowie. If I haven't met you, uh, welcome. Thanks for visiting us today on your long weekend. I reckon uh, normally I'm out with the kids doing kids' ministry, and Carl, who was our crazy engineer today, looks after the sermons on the whole. Um, a good day not to be in kids' ministry, I think, with the whistles and the <laughs> we had given out in the kids' talk. Um, we're up to James chapter 3, so if you're visiting on you and you haven't, it'd be great to go and listen to our last two sermons. We're halfway through the book of James, and today, as has been announced, we're really turning our attention to the tongue and how we use our tongue. It's interesting with sermons. In one sense, sermons are a pretty unnatural way to deal with Scripture. And we have a book like James or letters of the Bible that are written as a whole. They're meant to be read as a whole, and by... By splitting them up into sections and chapters and just dealing with one chapter a week, uh, we, we run the risk, I think, of missing out on some of that kind of big picture stuff that's going on in the book. You can just take one chapter of the Bible and, and perhaps 
miss out on the overall themes and ideas and arguments. Um, something that can be helpful to combat this risk is to have a key verse for a book. So um, the key verse we've been looking at for James is James chapter 1, and it's verse 21 and 22. I know that the kids are doing this as their memory verse. You might like to flip there now. This is James chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do, you, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. I've said James is an incredibly practical book, and in that sense, I think it's very pointy. Uh, James wants his readers to live out the word of truth that God has planted in them. He wants their whole life, everything, their actions, their words, to align with their faith. In one sense, of course, this makes sense. There's an integrity to what we want. Our actions and our beliefs and our words need to sit together. Um, if we're going to be looking at James chapter 3 today, let's recap what we've already looked at in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So in chapter 1, back in page 1879, we learnt that as Christians we're to persevere through many kinds of trials and temptations and this should produce maturity in our lives. And we're told to pray for wisdom from God to do this. And He'll give us that wisdom without showing impartiality. In chapter 2, we learn, well, we're not to show impartiality either. We learn the believers, those with faith in Jesus, are to not show favoritism. We need to see ourselves as God does. We need to see others as God sees them, as those who sit alongside us under the same mercy and justice of God. And this is how our faith, we'll end in chapter 2, this is how our faith is to produce good deeds. What's inside our faith always shows up in our actions. Faith without deeds is not faith at all. It's empty, it's dead faith. We talked about it being an empty fellow uh, last week. And this week in chapter 3, James takes that piercing searchlight of of gospel ethics and swings it from looking at favoritism and works to our words. It's like he's, he's taking that, that searchlight and focusing it down from works to words and, and how words reveal what lies beneath. It's a pretty scary idea, I think, in James 1. Perhaps a good reason to go on a public holiday when we're preaching on how we use our words. That's so important. For James, the way we use our words is very close to our faith. So this week, um, we're looking at chapter 3 again. Like much of James, it's pretty easy to understand what's being said. It's very hard to do. I want to look at three different sections. I think there's an outline in your leaflets if you want to use it. The three things we're going to look at is, firstly, the power of positive words, then the power of negative words, and then the power beneath our words. So firstly, the power of positive words. Words are powerful. That's why teachers, in verse 1, are warned that they'll be judged more strictly. So they minister through words, words that carry life, words that in, of instruction, uh, words of correction... Words that need to line up with their behaviour. So not many of you should be teachers, he says, perhaps to a context where everyone wanted to have a go. 
See, at the time when Jesus was, sorry, at the time when James was writing his, his letter, um, the New Testament hadn't been compiled. So what the teachers at the time had was a very important job of accurately communicating those lessons of Jesus. Um, they had an important job, particularly given that a lot of their, I guess, congregations were illiterate. So how important is it that they communicate the words of God, of Jesus, correctly? Today, I think it's still important for our teachers, isn't it, not to get it wrong and mislead people. But we have a big advantage. We have the whole counsel of God compiled for us in the Bible. So this means for us that we can look at the Bible and see for ourselves where the message of the teacher is coming from. So please do challenge your teachers. If you um, are listening to someone teach about God, about Christianity, and you can, can't really see where their words are coming from, if you can't see how what they, their words line up with the Word, or perhaps even how their behaviour doesn't line up with the Word, then challenge them about it. Um, but when you challenge them about it, do it out of love, do it humbly, um, and do it knowing that, like them, you too have got to submit to the word in your life. Do it knowing that, like them, they make like you, they make mistakes. We all sit under the mercy and judgment of God. And hopefully, this perspective will kind of prevent us from getting into those useless theological debates. And it's actually a place of humility and love, trying to come under the word together. So challenge your teachers if you think they're getting it wrong. Okay, the tongue, though small, can direct the course of the whole life. James gives us two word images, two similes, to help us see this point. Firstly, the bit in a horse. A small bit in the mouth of the horse can direct the whole beast. Second simile was the rudder of a ship. A small rudder of a ship can steer it on course through the chaos of the sea. Our tongue, like a bit and a rudder, though small can be very powerful. Man, it can have a big impact. It can bring order and direction where there's just chaos in a life. I think that's why James says in verse 2 that um, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole life in check. Pretty much, if you can control your tongue, then the rest of your body should be easy. I think that's the idea he's getting at. The tongue is disproportionately powerful in our life. It can, we can all think of examples, I think, of times when um, words have had a huge impact. I wonder if you can think of a, maybe a teacher you had in high school who said something that kind of shaped the way your life went. Perhaps you've had a, a really important uncle or auntie in your life that has uh, just been significant in shaping you. Perhaps a mentor. Perhaps a person who first told you about Jesus. Words can be incredibly impacting. Words can have a powerful, positive impact on us. A powerful one for me growing up was uh, that my mum, my mum and dad said this, but particularly my mum said a lot to me that I love you no matter what. And that, that was incredibly powerful. She used to tell me this. She used to say, um, Michael, I believe God has got an, um, a great plan for your life. Now, for me as a child, um, I was a pretty sensitive kid and feeling victimized at school. They, they were actually really uh, reassuring words. 
and words I think I've carried, carried with me as well. I wonder what it is for you. Maybe if you're married, it was your wedding day. Those two words, I do, carried amazing impact and weight as your um, marriage has worked out. I think words of correction can also be powerfully positive in our lives. Words of correction, yet they're very hard to take sometimes. It's sometimes harder to give. What about correction from a boss? It might be something as simple as, Listen, mate, you've got to stop doing it that way. Uh, do it this way, it's more efficient. And it could shape your career. What about words of correction from a parent? You know, stop yelling at your sister. She belongs in this family too. You know, they shape our respect for one another, our understanding of relationships. What about a word of correction where one Christian talks to another Christian and says, come back, you're a danger of walking away from your faith. If you can see someone who's a Christian and, and you just think they are making some pretty bad decisions, these decisions they're making may lead them away from Jesus, then talk to them about it. Rarely do people wake up one morning and go, yeah, I think I'm going to reject Jesus today. More often than not, it's just this myriad of small decisions that slowly choke out our faith. So get alongside people, love them by correcting them takes courage and do it with humility, um, do it with love, but be, do it bravely and correct them as a fellow believer who equally needs the mercy and forgiveness of God. I think it's significant. In James, the very last little bit of advice he gives in the book is about correcting someone who's falling away. Have a look at it. It's the last two verses in James, James chapter 5, 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters... It's interesting to me that he ends the book this way. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from, from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Can you think of a more powerful way to use your words than that? Believers have been given words of life. Um, after some difficult teaching in John chapter 6, Jesus was proclaiming about himself being the bread of life and some people were, well, this is a hard teaching to take and some people were leaving Jesus and Jesus turns to his disciples and says, what about you? Are you going to leave me too? Simon Peter responds, Lord, where else, do we, where else could we go when you alone have the words of eternal life? So we've been given these words of eternal life, of eternal significance. Powerful words, words that can save through the grace of God. What better way to use the power of the tongue than to share these words of life with others? All right, there's more we could say on the power of positive words, but there's a bit from James. What about the power of negative words? We get to the flip side. I think we get uh, a very powerful word image, a metaphor saying the tongue is fire from James in this verse 5 and, five and 8 in chapter 3. This is what it says. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the body parts, among the uh, parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. Strong words from James. If it doesn't cause us to... Oh, 
I think then something is perhaps wrong. I think we get this, right? A, a lie, a boast, a word spoken in anger can have a big impact. It gets away from us. It can get a life of its own, like a rumor. It spreads. It can be damaging. I think if James was writing today, he would include tweets and Facebook in this category. You know, once you've typed something out and hit go, it's very hard to retract it. Um, don't tweet in anger, I think is a good, a good lesson perhaps from James. Let it sit, let it think about it. Personally, I don't think I've ever tweeted, but um, I know that it's something that people do. Uh, and perhaps so, so in terms of social media, a little bit illiterate, but there you go. Um, we know the impact of fiery words in our life. We've probably been a victim of it at least once that we can remember. Yet for James, the main impact of words is not on the victim, but on the person who speaks the words. Did you see that? Uh, he says um, in verse 6 that the tongue and itself is set on fire. The whole course of one's life is affected. The fiery tongue betrays the body and sets the whole person alight. It's interesting to me that James connects his metaphor of the tongue and fire with the fires of hell. Seems very strong. In the very next section, um, the tongue is turned into a restless, untamable, poisonous snake. It's another kind of almost demon kind of image. In the section after that, we, we're warned about worldly wisdom that is unspiritual and demonic in verse 15. What is James doing? I think he's saying the source of these evil words is none other than hell. These are dark words. It's a dark and deadly source that spews forth fiery words. What comes out of the mouth reveals something about what lies beneath. The power beneath our words. I wonder what is the power beneath our words. I've really enjoyed uh, looking at the amazing images coming out of Hawaii. I know that it's devastating people's homes, but there's also some pretty spectacular images. I've got a couple on the screen here. I really find it interesting looking at volcanic eruptions. Well, here's one. We're kind of, you've seen these, the, the lavas coming out of the ground, spilling and just slowly crawling over and gobbling up the landscape. You get these squirts. Now, this one I really think is quite amazing, this spout of lava flowing out of the landscape into the sea. It's just an immense picture of power. Um, and here's someone not employing godly wisdom, I think, getting very close in their boat uh, to what to me seems like a massive force ready to explode. Um, it's an image, I think, a little bit perhaps of what James is, is getting at. There's something beneath the surface. For me, the volcanoes, I love to think, what's causing that? Can you imagine just getting a cross-section of the earth there? Huge plumes of magma coming out from underneath the crust, forcing its way to the surface. It's unrealistic to think that a volcano is going to erupt in flowers. It, what lies beneath is generally what comes out. What comes out the top shows what's inside. So James says the same is true for our tongue. Our words are a litmus test of what's in our hearts. They reveal something. So in verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Let's connect it with what we've already heard in James. Chapter 1, we're told to humbly accept or live out the word that's planted in us. So the word's planted in us, we're to live it out. 
uh, or obey it, accept it. In chapter 2, we're told that our faith, what's inside, will show up in our actions. Now in chapter 3, we're told that from our heart, this fresh spring will bubble up good words, words that praise God and build others up. We're to work hard at what we say. We're to work hard at this because it's so easy for us to trip up. Jesus says in Mark 7, it's what comes out of a person that defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. It's in Mark 7, verses 20, 21. So we're warned here in James 3 about being double-minded again. We got this in chapter 1, verse 8, the warning against being a double-minded person. We get it again next week in chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, this, this is that person with their foot in, in two camps. It's the person that can praise God with their lips and then curse humans with the same tongue. James says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be in verse 10 of chapter 3. James warns us about the human potential for duplicity. We may praise God with our tongues on Sunday, but for the rest of the week, the true nature of that polluted internal world bubbles forth in corruption. Verse 16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So this is worldly wisdom. Wisdom that's in contrast to the heavenly wisdom. So is there any hope for us? We all get it wrong with our words, don't we? Does that mean we're all polluted inside? What's the solution? I do take comfort from verse 2 where it says, we all stumble in many ways. No one gets it right all the time. So what are we to do? Well, I'd like to suggest two things. There's probably lots more, but here's two from James that we've been looking at. Uh, the first one is, actually do have to work on it, and the second one is, come back to the pure will. Two things, so firstly, we need to apply effort. The tongue is a slippery little serpent, and we know that when someone steps on our tail, we want to snap back with bitter words. So, in those moments of temptation, apply effort. Pause before you speak and use that tiny moment of silence to pray and ask God for wisdom from heaven. Because, James 3.17, wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness." We need to apply effort. That kind of wisdom doesn't come naturally to everyone, I think. Our next series is on the book of Proverbs. And um, Proverbs is, as we said last week, kind of one of James's primary sources. Proverbs tells us to choose the path of wisdom and not the path of folly. So we'll get some practical advice on that from Proverbs in our next series. How are we going to apply effort? I think it's in those moments of temptation that we're ready to snap back and we do have a choice. I think we, we can feel this. We could make that cutting remark that brings the instant gratification, I'll show you. Or 
we could choose the path of wisdom. Here's some examples. Um, when your well-meaning parent-in-law tells you how to care for your baby, pause, pray, and choose the path of wisdom. When the basketball umpire clearly makes the wrong call, again, pause, <laughs> pray, choose the path of wisdom, which is often to say silent, I think. When your wife gets home from a haircut and says, what do you think of my hair? Pause and say, you look amazing. <laughs> Not, will it ever be curly again? Which I did once and have been reminded of. <laughs> I stumble in many ways too. So we need to persist through these everyday little moments of trial and temptation. You know, the wisdom that comes from heaven, well, I think it will grow us in maturity. Uh, over time, that pattern of wisdom, I think, comes easier as we work with the Spirit of God to shape our, our words and our reactions to people. So what are we meant to do? Firstly, I think there is just a, an action of applying effort. We can do this only, of course, because of what God has done inside us. But there's those moments of choosing wisdom and not folly. The second thing is to come back to the pure well. When you're in the shower at the end of the day and you're reliving the conversation you had that had a fiery twist in the tail and there's that regret and you're reliving the words and you're thinking, I wish I'd said this rather than that. Uh, come back to the pure well. Don't stay in that moment of regret. The next chapter, chapter 4, Verses 7 to 10, it says this. You might like to flick over there. So this is chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Jesus is our source of purity. He is the pure well. The pure one died so that we can humbly come before God and be washed clean. In 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What's the pure well? When we daily come before God in repentance and dependence on His mercy, because we stumble in many ways, we're lifted up. It's a daily activity. Our eyes see that indeed His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness and love to us is great. And from that fresh, pure world bubbles forth praise, good words, that build others up and glorify our awesome Heavenly Father. I think the Christian life, it does take effort. But that effort is only effective when we continue to submit humbly to Jesus, thanking Him for the work of transformation He's done in our lives, relying on His mercies and grace. I'm going to pray, and the band will come up and lead us in some songs. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we know that we need you for everything. We thank you that in Jesus we can have forgiveness. Please forgive us when we trip up with the words that we use. Help us to choose wisdom in those moments. 
And please help us daily to depend on your mercy. Amen.